one of America's besetting sins is impatience. We are an ASAP culture. We don't like to wait for anything. And so irritation and frustration and grumbling resignation and occasional outbursts of anger are commonly displayed responses when we must wait longer than we expected. And with this, our expectations keep rising as the speed of life continues to accelerate with new technologies and time-saving innovations. We live high-speed lives. And when something slows us down and forces us to wait, our spirits revolt. We don't like it. Now, most of us will nod our heads in agreement with this and we'll say, yes, yes, life is crazy. I know that I should slow down sometimes. I know that I should be more patient. But such is life in this world in which we live. It's just the way that it is. But I'm not sure how often we consider the negative effects that impatience has on our relationship with God. Now, I don't mean by this, and this could take a whole sermon in itself, the sin of impatience. Breaking God's law that says, rejoice always. That says, give thanks in all things. We break God's law there. Impatience is a sin, certainly, and we could go on with other texts that, uh, and commands of the Lord that it violates. But what I mean is that an impatient spirit reveals a fundamental disorientation toward the way that we must learn to relate to God. You have not read in the Scriptures a verse that said, be impatient with God. But we do read, and have read this morning, wait on Him. A mature walk with God involves a life of patience with God for whom I am always waiting in steadfast trust. Patience with God for whom I am always waiting in steadfast trust. Some years ago, British researchers conducted a door-to-door survey on religious belief. And one of the questions was this. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, and those kinds of things? And one man responded very honestly this way, No, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. Isn't that great? That's what a lot of people believe in, is the ordinary God. The one who really doesn't intervene. Well, let me say this in the context of the text before us today. You don't wait for an ordinary God. You just don't wait for an ordinary God. You go find such an idol, and you get it to act immediately in your behalf whenever you might happen to need it, if it can, which it can't. But an ordinary God can be pressed into service and cajoled to meet your demands on your timetable. The one true and living God that we worship as Christ's people is no ordinary God. 
He is a God we must learn to wait for patiently. To watch for Him in steadfast trust. Last week, we saw the first hint of this theme as we studied the prophecy of Habakkuk. He is wrestling with God. He's struggling to trust a God who always does what is right, but who does not always make sense. And we saw the first initiation of this focus upon waiting steadfastly upon the Lord. If you'll make your way there to Habakkuk and the minor prophets right at the end of the Old Testament, we come to this important prophecy and to our second segment here today in chapter 2. Just to remind us, and perhaps for those that were not with us last week, there are certain ideas, historical facts that we must understand if the book of Habakkuk is to make any sense to us at all. Indeed, without these facts, vast stretches of the Old Testament do not make sense. Remembering on the map of the day, uh, Israel as a land bridge between the major powers of the earth at that time. Egypt to the south and a bit to the west. And then there was Babylon here in this red circle to the north. Uh, or rather Assyria to the north and Babylon to the south, also referred to as the Chaldeans, and so we have it in our translation here. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians conquer Assyria to the north, and all of these nations have a major part in the history of Israel. Israel has a part in their history. A key Old Testament emphasis when it comes to the history of Israel, is the monarchy. The time when Israel was ruled by kings. And it is important for us to understand there was a time when that monarchy was established. And then the monarchy divides under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And to the north is the kingdom of Israel. So in the, in the land of Israel, to the north, is referred to as the kingdom of Israel. And to to the south, the kingdom of Judah. Now here's where, again, vast stretches of the Old Testament are fairly indecipherable if we don't understand the interplay of these nations and the split of Israel's kingdom. Now, that's a bit of history. It's not too difficult to grasp. We just keep this in view. It opens up all kinds of ideas. And one of the things is that is significant are the warnings that if Israel does not listen to God, does not submit to the law of God, there will be an invasion and there will be a captivity. And this indeed happens in 722 for Israel the kingdom to the north. Assyria invades and deports the Israelites living in the land. 722. It is a while later, for historical reasons we won't go into here, but it's a while later the southern kingdom survives, and a while later before it is also taken captive. That was the the way of doing it at that particular point in history. You come in, you invade, and you remove the people to live elsewhere. It disconnects them from the gods of the land, the nations thought, and it allows them to control them and to keep them from rebellion. And so under this plan, God warns Judah, the southern kingdom, that this will take place. Where is Habakkuk? 
the prophet, it's important that we know where he is on this timeline. That little star hiding down there on the bottom right corner is where he lands in this whole scheme of things historically. Judah is running from God. It is in a godless state. And Habakkuk is grieving over this problem. But he writes and warns the southern kingdom that they will be taken captive, they will be judged by Babylon. This is the warning of this prophet, this is the warning of, of many others. Now in this whole dilemma that Habakkuk deals with is the fact that in Judah there are God's people who are running from God and nothing's happening. So get, getting himself into his own environment, into his own world, he sees the leaders that are not being faithful to God's call. And so he offers the objection in chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3. He says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? The nation is being led by godless people and the people are running away from God and Habakkuk says, why do you not do something about this injustice? Well, God doesn't dismiss his concern. In fact, he agrees with it and he answers him. The answer that he gives causes even more trouble to Habakkuk. The answer is, I will do something about this. I will send the Babylonians to invade and to deport the people of Judah. Well, Habakkuk is even more grieved by this news. Remember chapter 1, verse 13. At the end of verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, How can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God's ways were confusing in allowing Judah to go on in her sin. He objects. God answers, I'm not going to let them go on in their sin. I'm sending Babylon to destroy, to punish, to discipline my people. How is that right? Maybe we could get a little sense of it if we as a church gathered together and said, we are going to consider America's sin. And we come up with a long list of the ways in which America is turning her back on God and running wildly away from the Scriptures and God's purposes and truth. And we begin a prayer meeting and we begin to bring these sins before the Lord and say, what is, America has, is, is so far off track. And would we not say that? And we as God's people are very concerned for our nation and the direction that it is taking. And God speaks to us and says, you're right. You're right, and I want to tell you something. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send the Islamic State to take over America. We might get a little bit of a sense of how Habakkuk took this message. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There, that, that, that's bad being pushed out by worse. That's bad being disciplined by worse, how can we have this? This is Habakkuk's situation. He grieves with this bad and confusing news. 
But he does take a step back in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. From complaining and questioning this confusing news, he takes a decided step forward in faith in chapter 1 where he now moves to waiting. There is progress here in his faith. The prophet watches patiently for God's promise of a destroying army to sweep down upon Judah and to discipline her for her sin. It is fascinating that Habakkuk does not run to Egypt, but rather he waits in the land, waits to know what God will do and how this severe discipline will fall upon Judah. His waiting is soon rewarded with a word from God who reveals more about the future. As we come to chapter 2 and verse 2, that's where I would, tend, I would choose to put the chapter division. We'll pick up there in chapter 2 and verse 2. You notice down through verse 5 that God will give an initial answer of counsel and direction and putting things in perspective for Habakkuk. So he's helping him work through what seems to be injustice and what seems to be very confusing. Verses 2 through 5, he counsels the prophet. Then in chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, from this point to the end of the chapter, we have five pronouncements of condemnation against the Babylonians. So God is using the Babylonians to discipline Israel, but now we look into the future and we see what God will do with Babylon, with the Chaldeans. You notice there in verse 6, a little ways down in verse 6, there is a woe, and then in verse 9, a second woe, in verse 12, a third, in verse 15, a fourth, and then in verse 19, the fifth woe, or condemnation. It could almost be translated, ah, Here is the truth about Babylon, this word of warning and condemnation from the Lord. So with that in view, we'll move through particularly the second section fairly quickly, but let's soak for a moment in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 5, where the Lord answers Habakkuk. He talks to him now and counsels him as Habakkuk has been waiting on the Lord. The Lord answered me, verse 2, and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. That is, God has a message for Habakkuk. He wants Habakkuk to relay this message to the entire kingdom of Judah. This message is to be communicated in written form, that is, etched on clay tablets, as a permanent, displayable record from God. God goes on record with this message. That he may run who reads it is not that whoever reads this message will run away to safety. That's not the idea. But that he who reads this message will run throughout Judah and proclaim it and announce it to everyone. God is speaking. He is coming forward with his plan and he wants everyone to know what it is. So the messengers will run with this message. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. What is the vision that he's talking about? What vision is is hastening to the end? The message God has revealed about the invasion of the Chaldeans coming in to discipline God's people. 
The sovereign God has perfectly timed that invasion. It hastens to the end. The Hebrew speaks of panting for air. It's coming in hot pursuit. It's been running across the desert, so to speak, and now it's going to arrive at the land. One author has said, well, God's train is never late. It arrives on schedule, period. It arrives on schedule. God's train is never late. And it will not lie. It personifies here. Habakkuk personifies the message. It will be absolutely true. It will not lie. The middle of verse 3, it is, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There's a play on words here in Hebrew. If it tarries, then tarry. If it seems to you to be a long time that injustice continues to prevail in Judah, wait for it. Be patient. With steadfast trust in God, wait. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Now the his here in the singulars is speaking of the king of the Chaldeans, the king of Babylon, kind of personifying the whole nation. So we have a singular that applies to the people of Babylon or to the empire of Babylon, but the king standing for the nation, uh, verse 4, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, simply said. It's puffed up, his soul, he, uh, his head swells with pride is the idea. The Babylonian army that will invade and crush Judah because of her sin against God is an empire that is driven by arrogant pride. God, don't you know who these people are? Don't you know the horrors that they are bringing down upon the people? Yes, I do. They're a proud, arrogant people. They are not just. I am but I know they're not. In contrast, God reveals the fundamental orientation of those who are upright. These people are not upright, but, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. A key theme in this book, a key theme in the Bible. The righteous, those who are just before God, live by faith. Now, as a key verse in the Bible, its meaning is nonetheless very disputed. We, and, and, and the dispute only goes a wrong direction with one view, and we'll get to that. But we could quickly reject it, I guess, at this point without really thinking further upon it. And that's the idea that if you are faithful, you will earn a righteous standing before God. The Bible makes quite clear that that's not the idea here. But, does it mean that righteous people live faithfully? Or does it mean, as the Apostle Paul uses it in Romans, that a sinner is made righteous by faith? So is this about how we become righteous, or is this about how righteous people live? Well, both ideas are clearly revealed throughout the Bible to be the case. Both ideas are true. It depends on the context. So here, I think the translation is right. It means the godless are driven by selfish pride, while the godly live by steadfast trust in the Lord, not in themselves. It's that simple contrast. 
And that contrast is presented in our lives. It's presented in this culture wherever we go. There are people who trust in themselves, in pride. They seek their own way, their own purposes, and there are those who live by steadfast faith in the Lord. There's one of two ways. So here I think it means the godless are driven by selfish pride, but the godly live by steadfast trust in the Lord. You remember back to chapter 1 and verse 12 and that disputed phrase, we shall not die. Habakkuk says there, we shall not die. I think that he speaks there, as I argued last week, of God's covenant with Israel. That even though this discipline comes, the nation will not be ultimately destroyed because of God's promise to the nation. But does it not seem now that that promise is really in jeopardy with the coming of this invading army? I think it links up here to chapter 2 and verse 4. Here is how you will live. We will not die. We will not be overrun by the enemy, but we will live. How will we live? We will live by faith in God. We will live by steadfast faith. Now, Paul, as he uses and quotes this text, uses it indeed as a a thesis for the book of Romans, wherein he develops and defends both of these ideas about faith. Sinners, Paul argues, are justified by, not by works, but by faith in God's provision of salvation. We have there Romans 1 through 5, or some would argue 1 through 4. But that's clearly his thesis there. You do not become righteous, you do not become just by good works. It is by faith in what Christ has done that makes us right in God's standing. But then he takes the other idea, those declared righteous by God live each day by steadfast trust in the Lord. This is how the godly live, they trust God. It's that complicated, and it's that simple. I live every day in steadfast trust that God is God, that His Word can be trusted, that He will bring about this world to the end for which He has created it, that He loves me with an infinite love. I live in that trust. Chapter 6-8 through of Romans. So as Robertson writes, faith serves as the origin of righteousness in justification. It's by faith that we're justified. It's how we get there. And as the framework for the continuation of righteousness in sanctification. We become justified by trusting Christ. And we grow in our Christian walk as we continue to put our faith in the Lord. So how we get righteous and how we evidence our righteous standing is by faith. So, if you're asking the question, or if I could put the question before you, how can I be forgiven of my sin and made right in God's eyes? How can I know that God accepts me? The answer to that question is that we are justified by faith. We put our faith and our confidence in what someone else has done. Namely, in what Jesus Christ has done to pay the penalty of sin 
And in his resurrection power, providing for my right standing before God. It's not in what you do. We ask then, secondly, how do I know if I'm living by steadfast trust in God? Now that I have received from Him my righteous standing, how do I know that I'm actually living by trust in the Lord? Well, we all know we don't, certainly at times. But there are certain evidences, and I offer no exhaustive list by any means, but a person who is living by steadfast trust in the Lord, one evidence will be that they deal with sin. They know that they break the law of God. They know that they displease God. And what do they do when they do that? If you're living in steadfast trust in the Lord, you repent. You live a life of repentance. You say, I was wrong. Father, I broke your law, and I know that through the death and the resurrection of Christ, I have forgiveness. I ask you to forgive. Those who don't live in steadfast trust in the Lord excuse their sin. They ignore their sin. They hide from their sin. They never want to come clean. Another evidence that we are walking in steadfast trust in the Lord is that we heed His counsel. We love His Word. We want His counsel. We desire to know what God is saying for us to do. We have have an interest in it. And we seek out that word when we are confused and are ever learning that word and knowing that by it is skill in living in faithfulness in the presence of God. Another evidence is that we have a future hope and an expectation. If I'm living in steadfast trust in the Lord, then I am trusting that His promises concerning the future are in fact going to take place. We take up the mode here that Habakkuk takes up and we wait on the Lord. We live as a waiting people. We live as a patient people, always waiting on the promises of God. Our hope is in the return of Christ. Our hope is in the establishment fully of His kingdom and ultimately in the eternal state. We keep looking forward with expectation to what God has promised. I'm not consumed by every day here. I don't look at this as my final place. I look ahead into the future. And if we are living by steadfast faith, we will find our identity in Christ. We will find our identity in the gospel of Christ and in the work of Christ to gather His church. We will long to be part of that work in one way or another. To say, Jesus reigns. He is calling out a people for His name and I want a part in that work. I involve myself in it. This is not an exhaustive list, but steadfast faith does not come simply by saying that we have it, but by living as if we are in fact trusting the Lord. And it affects every area of our life. So there are two ways that are laid out for us here in verse 4. The one who is puffed up and is not upright in his own mind, but the righteous living by faith. Two ways. One lives every day trusting God, and one lives every day stubbornly, proudly trusting self to get ahead in the world. Which mode are you in? Seeking to give careful self-analysis, which mode are you in? Do you trust in yourself? Are you trying to get 
through life on your own strength and by your own wisdom, promoting your own ways? Or do you live each day trusting in the Lord? The question we must all ask in light of this very important verse. He continues in verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all, as his own all peoples. The Chaldean king's sin of pride is fueled by the diluting power of wine. The Chaldeans were infamous for drunken parties. We know that if we know our Old Testament. Daniel chapter 5 gives us a picture of one of those parties. They were known for this historically. But the king is also driven by the insatiable desire of greed. His lust for wealth, as insatiable as the grave, Sheol, the realm of death, it's always collecting people. He cannot collect enough money. He keeps plundering other people. And this leads now to the full condemnation of the Babylonian Empire. Judah is in sin. God will bring Babylon to discipline. What about that, God, says Habakkuk? They're terrible people. Yes, indeed they are, and their day is coming. They too will be judged. Now, boy, we're entering into danger zone here. Uh, verse 6, all the way through to the rest of the chapter, is the wickedness of the king of Babylon. Why would we care about that? We could dismiss this quite quickly. Well, let's work at it just a little bit up front. Imagine that you were invited, seated in the courtroom of a famous judge who was about to sentence a drug lord of a major crime family that's been disrupting life around the world in this country and in your city. You have been privileged to be invited to that courtroom and to sit there and hear the judgment of this judge. A judge who's known to be faithful. A judge who knows what this crime family has done. All the crime, the harm, the murder that they have caused, all of the people that they have drugged down and ruined simply to make themselves immensely wealthy, what will this judge say? Well, we'd all be very riveted to sit there and to hear what is about to be said. What we are about to read is the indictment of the sovereign God of the universe against the Chaldean king and his empire. Now, I'll admit, it goes back in time a long ways. But we see in this king's indictment the controlling lusts of our own world. It really has a lot more to do with our day than we might initially think. It is a poem that reveals the heart of one driven by self and refusing to steadfastly trust in God. It is indeed our world and it is the nations of this world as they go off the track and refuse to heed the sovereignty of our Lord. So the condemnation of Babylon comes. And we will go through this fairly quickly, but again, just by way of introduction, we have here, beginning at verse 6, and these woes, five stanzas with three verses each. There is a condemnation against the powerful Babylonian empire, which is judged in keeping with its crimes. Now these verses in the Hebrew text are filled with literary devices 
which will we just can't take time to linger and work over, but it was very memorable. It is robust poetry, and it is deeply constructed, or carefully constructed with deep implications to that day, and certainly to ours. So what was it that raised the anger of God, that would bring this kingdom down. Here in prophecy is what he says, verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Who are these? Who's taunting the king of Babylon? It's all the conquered peoples. So he just talked about there in verse 5. He collects all of the peoples as his own. There's going to, become a, day, there's going to come a day when they will rise up and they will taunt him. He will receive what he's asked for. All these people. All these conquered nations. Now right then, Babylon was the most powerful nation on the earth. And Habakkuk says, one day, however, all these conquered peoples will revile this nation. Verse 6 starts then with woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Or for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. The tables are going to be turned. Using the imagery of finance, the Chaldean armies pillaged their victims and loaded themselves down with heaps of plunder. But one day the tables are turned all the wealth that they stole from others, now the ticket is coming due. And it will be stolen away from them. As one selfish, greedy nation takes away from another. Do you remember that great story, The Christmas Carol? Remember Ebenezer Scrooge and his vile ways of taking money from others? And you remember then the ghost of Christmas uh, future leads him into the bedroom that he's occupied for all these years and he's now dead. And what do we see there? We see people rummaging through his stuff and stealing things from his bedroom and laughing about him and mocking him as they now steal from him now that he's dead. That's what's going to happen to the Babylonian king. You pillage and plunder and destroy, one day the tables will be turned and your victims will laugh at you as they take things back. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, the abusers would become the abused. Those who killed others would now be destroyed. The second woe begins in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. It's a reference to the lust to secure wealth by abusing others and then to store that wealth away to gain security for oneself. To gain for his house, a reference to his kingdom. But rather than gaining renown through the wealth that they have stolen, verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Raping other nations of their wealth and security is going to lead to shame and death. Babylon is seeking to secure her nest 
the problem that we face in this world. To make everything secure and safe, but in it all, she's only leading to her own shame and destruction. The king of Babylon sold his soul to accumulate wealth and assure the security of his dynasty. All he accomplishes is to write the obituary for his nation. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. That is, his building projects secured by plundering conquered peoples are now going to cry out injustice, violence, wickedness. Woe number three, stanza three, beginning at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Exactly what the Babylonian king has done and will do. God condemns them for killing people to build their own kingdom. Verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? What's that saying? The glory of Babylon was displayed in the cities that they erected, but all of the work, all of the engineering, all of the construction, all of the money that flowed into these places was merely a piling it up as fuel for the fire. They would be themselves one day destroyed. Verse 14. Here, a ray of sun breaks through the clouds for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Some people say that's so out of context. It had to be added here later. It didn't really fit into what Habakkuk's saying. I think it fits beautifully into what he's saying. Let me give you a breath of fresh air in all of this destruction and all of this wickedness and vileness of this nation. Ultimately, what all of the nations are serving is the kingdom of God. They don't do so willingly. They don't do so righteously, but that's what they're doing. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A poetic way of speaking against the raging of the nations against God. Amassing wealth only to be destroyed by another God-defying nation. But there is hope. There is hope, says Habakkuk. The day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. His kingdom will reign. Ultimately, that's what all of this is accomplishing. And we can know that the glory of the Lord will be seen throughout the whole earth. It is steadfast trust in such a promise that gives God's people hope in a fallen world. Put a deep root into this. This earth, this earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. There will be a knowledge of that glory that covers the earth. We live in that hope. Stanza number 4, woe number 4, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Maybe figurative, but there's plenty of evidence that it might have been literal. Not only were the Chaldeans known for drunkenness, they were also known to get others drunk and take advantage of them. This is in the historical accounts of the nation. It was an abusive nation. It was a sensual nation. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your circumcision. God is, in a sense, saying, go ahead and get drunk. Expose your own depravity. 
Go ahead and display that you refuse to honor God. Evidence that your whole focus is on sensual pleasure. Show yourself to not be God's people. Go for it, he says in a, in a sarcastic way. Because verse 16, the middle of the verse, here's the reality. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Utter shame will fall upon you. God will pour out His judgment on them. A common figure of speech, drinking the cup of the Lord, commonly means to drink the judgment of God. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What's that about? Not only had the Chaldeans pillaged and raped cities, they also wantonly destroyed the pristine forests of Lebanon. They didn't care. They just cut down trees for no concern at all. They killed the wildlife that was there just to destroy it just to come in and to show that they had been here and that they were big and powerful and could wreck things. God says you will be held accountable. God gives to mankind the freedom to cut down trees. It's a good thing to do. He gives us the freedom to kill animals. That can be done rightly. But we are to exercise this right as faithful stewards of God's gifts. And trees are His gift. Animals are His gift. And so if for right purposes in the service of humanity we can cut them down and take their lives to feed us, God says that is good. But do so as a steward. Not as a wrecker. Wanton, selfish destruction of earth's resources angers God. Even more wickedly, the Chaldeans destroyed many people along the way. Made in the image of God, that too angers God. And so he pronounces judgment. And verse 18 gets to the heart of all of their problems. They aren't exercising stewardship over the earth that the Lord has made for the glory of God's name. Rather, here's what it's all about, verse 18. You are idolaters. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Worst of all, the fundamental sin of the Chaldeans was their worship of false gods. The irony is the irony of all idolatry is that they create idols and then turn to them for help. Now today we're much more sophisticated. We pay other people to make our idols for us and then put our hope and our trust in it. Our identity gets bound up with material possessions. Let me tell you, if you think this is just about a king in Babylon, this is about us. Now, we may not serve the kinds of idols that the king of Babylon served, but we too serve money. 
we serve material things. There's an idolatry there that clings to our hearts. And God hates it. Continuing on the theme of idolatry and thus highlighting its horrors into the next woe, into the next stanza, verse, four, verse 19 says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath at all in it. No matter how much you try to arouse an idol, it cannot teach you anything. A car, a house, an education, a job. None can reveal truth. None can satisfy your soul. And so these idols glitter, but they cannot breathe. They shine, but they cannot reveal truth. They sparkle, but they cannot save. And in contrast, verse 20, the Lord is in His holy temple. God is alive. He breathes. He acts. He lives. He is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, notice it here, keep silence before Him. There it is again. Where the chapter started, it ends. It ends where it starts with waiting, with watching, in silence. This is no ordinary God. You don't press Him into service. You don't demand that He immediately does what you want Him to do. You wait. You stand patiently and in silence in a right sense of that term. As Psalm 46 said, Be still and know that I am God. Trust steadfastly, for I will be exalted among the nations. Wait for me. Wait for me. Silently, patiently wait for the Lord. All the earth, still yourself. And be silent before Him. There's so much that we learn from this condemnation of an ancient king. And we've, filtering this message, have grasped and put in deeper roots into the theology of God's Word and into the way that we should see our lives. But just a, a few summary points. First, do we not see here, said, simple, said simply, no one's getting away with anything. Right? Right? That's what he's telling us. That's what he's revealing. No one's getting away with anything. It may seem like it at times. God's timing and approach may confuse us as he allows wickedness to go unpunished, it seems. Habakkuk could not understand how God could use these godless people to punish his people. How he could use godless people to punish less godless people. The answer is not that God is ignorant, and that's never the answer. The answer is that God is in His holy temple. He reigns from heaven's throne, and, he must, and we must trust Him to run the universe, and He's running it. No one is getting away with anything. Adam Smith, in discerning the history of nations, said this, Tyranny is suicide. 
When a nation is committed to self-aggrandizement through oppression of others, it has written its own obituary. There is a self-destroying power in evil that time always reveals. That's just what God is saying. No one is getting away with anything, and in this truth we can rest if we orient ourselves to wait on God with steadfast trust. And that leads to the next idea linked with it, and that is that God's kingdom rules the nations, and they will all be conquered in the end. It is His kingdom that will prevail. We put down again roots into that truth as we consider this passage. Our focus should be forward with absolute confidence no matter what we see. And so we hear of the atrocities of Islamic State as it comes in and rapes cities in every sense of that word and asks people, are you a Christian? And responds in violent ways if they say yes. We have to wait. We have to wait. So I hear these accounts. These are our brothers and sisters. These are people we'd love if we were in their churches. Not all of them, but many of them, because they love Christ, they're treated this way. We have to wait patiently on the justice of God. And say in the core of our soul, as verse 14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not right now. But that will come. In time. And we wait. And the personal implications of this prophecy to our faith and are immensely practical. Your world, taking this big picture down into your world, your world will be shaken someday. It's the case for every one of us. Our world is shaken at some point along life's journey. And it's now that we set down deep roots of steadfast trust in God despite the confusion of what we see. Not understanding His ways, we must prepare. We prepare for that day. My world's shaken, but I come and say, I will wait on you. I will stand in silence and wait on you, for you are the king. You are the sovereign Lord who reigns from heaven's throne. And so we choose one of two paths in this world, a world of ordinary gods and very extraordinary people who direct them and make them. Or a world of one extraordinary God who rescues ordinary people from their sin. The fulfillment of Habakkuk's prophecy hinges in the end on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the establishment of the Lord's kingdom, the righteous living by faith is all pointing forward to the work of Christ. And we gather around this table this morning to remember that work. Christ triumphed over the powers of darkness. His resurrection proves that Habakkuk's vision is on track. It's on line. 
The woe against sin of Babylon's leader is a woe that is pronounced against every one of us for all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. But this woe, this judgment from God fell upon the Son. The Son standing in our place and paying the penalty of our sin for us. As we come to faith and rest in what He has done to accomplish in our behalf, we recognize no one's one's getting away with anything. And that means me. But Christ's payment of my sin at the cross and His resurrection power gives us hope. On the cross, He crushed the pride of man. He crushed my pride and all the despotic powers of darkness so that we are now justified by faith in what He has accomplished. And now we look to what He will accomplish. We live in anticipation of the return of Christ. We live with that orientation. And so, here at this table, we bring that orientation to bear. Do this until I come. Observe my death to pay the penalty of God's wrath against your sin. Observe this. Remember this. Gather together as my people and call it to mind and commune in this truth together until I come. So at this table, we wait. We wait patiently for the return of Christ. In a sense, we wait in silence and in steadfast trust that our God reigns sovereignly, that He saves His people from their sin and that He will come again and bring justice to all things. He's brought it to us, but Christ has taken that wrath. Let's remember, let's wait. Our fathers, we come before this table. We want to prepare ourselves, and I trust that we have been as we have looked at this passage, but we pray that You would deepen us and prepare us, allow us to confess sin, to purify our hearts as far as lies within us as we repent of our sin and trust in the work of Christ. But here at this table, as we remember the body and the blood of Christ given for us, we wait. We wait for His coming. We wait for the day when the glory of Your name will be known throughout this world. Here, help us to commune around these truths. Through Christ we pray. Amen.